welcome back for another episode here at Crest Talk. We're your hosts, Jamie Kim, Chloe Lee, and Jamie Freitag. At Crest, we believe everyone deserves support. The Crest app provides personalized support that helps you stress less and accomplish more. If you are new here, welcome. We just wanted to reassure you that your hosts are not together and we are no longer recording in the studio and we are recording this over an audio call. So today we are diving into a short segment that we wanted to introduce to you guys and it's going to be centered around the new Netflix docu-series called Lennox Hill. And today we'll actually be talking about the first two episodes. And to kind of give you guys a little background, Lennox Hill is a hospital in New York City um, bought by Northwell Health. Kind of the premise is following them around. It took a year and a half of them filming and it wrapped up around November 2019, like right before um, New York became one of the epicenters of coronavirus. So it's kind of very different to, to watch kind of like the whole medical world just a few short months ago. So um, the two neurosurgeons, Dr. Langer and Dr. Bookbar, are sort of partners in really growing the neurosurgery ring of Lenox Hill. Um, it's fairly new, and you kind of get to see their growing pains of trying to become a really competitive um, hospital in the New York City area, while um, you know you kind of also see their clinical life, which for me is really cool. And then with the two female doctors, they're both actually pregnant at the same time in in the docuseries, which is a cool kind of like, I guess, side story that the directors follow and and keep you updated with their their journeys as well as they're both still working in medicine during these like hard times. So um, it kind of gives you a wide range of perspectives in the hospital. Yeah, when I first watched the first few episodes, I honestly didn't really have high expectations because I watched like other reality shows and I just thought it was going to be kind of like that, like maybe some parts of the stage, like it's going to be really dramatic. But honestly, this first episode, it was just so interesting and fun to watch. It wasn't just from like a medical standpoint, but also from a very human standpoint. Of course, the doctors, but even the patients, all the emotions it, it's just so real. Like they don't try to hide anything. Um, they're very honest when they talk to the doctors. And so like, I felt like I was in the ER room with them and it wasn't like people weren't being like dramatic, trying to cause something or like make a scene, but it was literally what it is. And it just showed how it was in the hospital. What do you guys think? What were your initial reactions after the first episode? I completely agree. I was thinking the same thing. I was honestly scared that I was going to be bored um, I just didn't want to have too much of a, an expectation because I didn't want to be disappointed, but it was actually very captivating and it was really raw too, which is what really drew me close. And the biggest thing that I love about this is that it doesn't just jump around from patient to patient to patient, but it does center around a few patients where you kind of even get to know their personal history, whether it's emotional or physical and kind of journey with them through their path to trying to find healing with these surgeons and with these amazing physicians. So that's really what drew me in, the the way they made things personal. And it was actually, it's actually pretty funny too, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think what did it for me was that there's not, absolutely nothing outlandish about it or where you could kind of see, oh, you know, maybe this was staged, maybe the producers told them to say this, this, or the other thing. No, I didn't get that vibe at all um, while watching it. And for me, that was really important because there are so many, <laughs> like, I guess, not necessarily reality, but maybe even like um, like Scrubs and House and like Grey's Anatomy, where it completely takes the medical field like 
to a completely different uh, kind of entertainment spin. This was obviously extremely entertaining, but at the same time, like more real. And I think, you know, how it opened was was really kind of brought you to that space. So it opens with a young looking girl. Um, her name is Hannah. And she was getting blood washed out of her hair from a surgery. And the doctors are trying to get her to squeeze their hand or open her eyes or just kind of like respond. And for me, that was kind of crazy because she looked around my age. And for me to be undergoing brain surgery at this time in my life, like I couldn't even think about that. But here she was like waking up from a huge surgery in like a really prestigious hospital. Yeah. And then what was funny was it completely, the frame switched to a woman giving birth to like a beautiful, healthy baby. And for me, that was just cool how fast medicine can change from, you know, whatever brain disorder that the young girl had to one of the happiest moments of another patient's life. Right. Immediately watching off the bat, I was like, whoa, that's pretty personal, but definitely beautiful to see. The episode after that, you know, it follows and it starts off with kind of like background on Lenox Hill itself. Dr. Langer actually just calls it like a glorified community hospital. He's actually the chair of neurosurgery at Lenox Hill and explains how in 2010, Northwell bought the hospital. So it's pretty small compared to other well-known big name hospitals. In a way, I kind of felt like I was being introduced at just the right moment because you could see the growing pains that come along with being a chair and being a physician at the same time and having a family and a wife and kids. So you could already just tell that you were going to get a glimpse of every aspect of his life because as the episode goes on, you do see that. You do see his relationship with his wife and his kids as well as his patients, as well as you know, one of his partner physicians, Dr. Bookvar. So I was really excited to see all that unravel before me. And I also think it's interesting how he kind of brings you, Dr. Langer brings you behind the scenes of, so Northwell bought um, Lennox Hill in 2010, and then that's when he started their neurosurgery unit. So he basically, you know, talks a lot about how he started from zero with the whole thing. And, you know, I think this was a quote, he took way more uh, risk than he should have, but he's, you know, he still has a lot to go, but the passion that he puts into it um, is unmatched because he is at the same time being clinically practicing physician and also, you know, trying to deal with all the managerial side of it, which is interesting to watch, but you also, you kind of feel his growing pains at the same time. Exactly. He's not just practicing medicine and doing surgery. After that, he's trying to grow his department and start from zero and trying to grow it more and more. And we'll see what kind of problems arise within that because we all know it involves business, it involves communication and higher ups, if you will. So we'll talk about that more later on in the episode, but you know already from the start that that topic will come up again and again and again. Yeah, like right off the bat with Dr. Langer, I noticed that he placed huge importance on teamwork um like even just the way he addressed like his um the other surgeons and like the people in the surgery room they were like family like they didn't have to be so polite to each other they knew what they wanted and i felt like after every surgery he always addressed like oh like we're a family like we have to work well together and that's also another theme i feel like that's going to come up again and again as the episodes go on yeah, I learned a lot about like what it means to work as a team, as doctors, not just working for yourself and trying to get to the top by yourself, but you really do need each other to help and treat the patients as a hospital. Right. And, you know, you kind of see that with Dr. Bookvar as he talks about Langer, like he actually says like, who the bleep leaves Cornell to come to Lennox Hill? He's a real name. Why would he do that? That kind of like goes to show just like 
how I guess passionate Langer is about like growing this whole operation. And then, you know, as soon as he says that quote, he himself goes to talk to his own patient, Phyllis, who at first he's reading off kind of her history and it's ends up that she had breast, liver and lung cancers. And, you know, she, they're going to operate on this bump on her head that they don't know if it's like a side effect from a previous surgery or it's another um, metastasis of her original cancer. Even with him, you could kind of see like the whole, um, you know, behind the scenes and then what he says to the patient, how he comforts her during this hard time. And I just, I think that they're both incredible surgeons with incredible bedside manner. And it was really cool to see that. Yeah, I agree. Just the way that Dr. Bookfar spoke to his patients and even the parent, I mean, even the family of the patient was just so like loving and gentle. Um, I remember, I forgot which part of the surgery it was for Phyllis, but he was saying how like uh, when they discovered the cancer, he had to go talk to the family and he like steps, stepped outside of the operation room and he like went on his phone and it was just so personal to the family. And when he called them, he had this very difficult conversation. At the end, he was like, this is not an easy part of what we do. So, and when he said that, I really felt the heaviness in his voice and I felt um, the frustration and like like heartache that he was going through because he so desperately wanted to like not find cancer there, but he did. And now he had to um, spread that news to the family. Even that, like the emotions were so real and I was able to kind of understand um, the weight that he carried when he had to speak to the parents I mean the families himself yeah exactly and then the documentary then switches focus to an ER physician her name is Dr. Macri we could all notice this right away she is very very pregnant she's literally just strutting across the ER floor pregnant and still doing her job you can just tell like she's such a boss like I was just so inspired and I was really like when she turned around I saw her stomach I was like wow she really is working until the very last moment. So just off the bat with that, I was shocked. And guys, like pregnancy in and of itself, just when you're not even doing anything, it's already so hard. Side effects, you know, nausea, anything, complications, it's so difficult. And for her to be in such a fast-paced department, I was shocked. Right. And it's kind of, you know, that aside, just her whole attitude towards um, the emergency room is incredible. Like there's this one quote that she said that really stuck with me is the ER is the front line, insured, uninsured, criminal. We put it to the side and we just treat you. A collage of people come in and that's what I love about this field. She, for lack of a better term, is a bad bleep because she (laughs) goes into like any situation and we saw a bunch of her patients. Uh, One man with like an ingrown hair removal who was a previous drug addict and you know, another patient was an old man who fell on the sidewalk with like a huge cut on his face. But she, you know, despite being pregnant on top of all of this, you have to keep that in mind. She was so able to like adapt to like literally every single emergency that was happening. That for me was super cool because you you don't see that in, you know, Grey's Anatomy or other shows because this was real and this was raw, which I really liked. Yeah, through Dr. Macri, I was able to see that um, the hospital Um, should be a place where you don't judge people and just your sole purpose is to bring in people who are sick who need healing and just be able to kind of like look aside from their outer like identity and like who they who other people see them as but really just see them as human beings that want to be healed something else that really stood out to me when she was um, treating the 
the drug addict with the ingrown hair was she said that she grew up thinking like why is this person hurt and why is this person feeling this way and she learned compassion at a really young age that also kind of taught me that like your upbringing your childhood your young adulthood like molds who you become and whatever she went through in her childhood kind of brought her to where she is and she, she became that compassionate person that she is here today everybody has an equal ch- like has to given be given that chance to live an equal chance to live and dr macri really did a phenomenal job like explaining that and showing that to the audience and speaking of pregnant phenomenal inspiring women we also see another physician and OBGYN, Dr. Little Richardson. She's also pregnant. And she even says, this is the specialty that they tell you not to do. Long hours, on-call, nights and weekends. Again, pregnant. She's the chief resident and she's doing all of this. We even see her going in for her own checkup with her husband, who flew in from California. To see that, it's just so hard to take care of other patients and we all see this all the time that a lot of people in healthcare struggle with taking care of themselves. She it was really nice for me to see that, you know, she was doing her checkups when needed and it was really exciting because she said that they're going to wait until the birth to find out the sex and she said there's not that many genuine surprises in life. Um I can 100% agree with that and I thought that was really fun. Yeah, and that's something my mom always said. So I kind of, I kind of related with that because not many surprises in life are quote unquote good surprises. So you know, for me, it was wondering what it was like to take care of pregnant people your whole life, and then to become pregnant yourself and have that own like personal experience with with the whole thing. I I can imagine like if if that were me, I would be completely on top of all my ultrasounds, all my blood work, all my you know appointments and everything. And it would definitely be hard to be a patient in that field when you're already a physician working OBGYN. So it was really cool just to see how she would go back to work like it was nothing after her scan and just help deliver a lot of healthy babies and, and help with a lot of you know beautiful pregnancies. But that was really cool for me to, to witness. And it's also interesting to see that a lot of the physicians' families were in medicine already um, because the way Dr. Langer talks about, unfortunately, finding his dad on the floor after having a stroke, you know, and he said he was just talking to him an hour before. And he said, to me, my job is not a job. It's my life. He loves to operate, loves to do good cases and loving to help people. And I think that he has that own personal twist to it where his dad has, you know, neurological issues where he has the emotional capacity to understand what the patient's going through and be a phenomenal doctor as well as a phenomenal kind of like schmoozer when it comes to the whole business side of it. But overall, I can, I'm, (laughs) I cannot say, say more about that man. He's amazing. Right. And we also know he's someone who takes a lot of risk when he does surgery. He takes a lot of difficult cases. People from all over the country come to Lennox Hill just for him. We see this with a woman named Mitzi. She had a tumor, she had a brain tumor, and she was struggling with it for 10 years, and no one in her journey was willing to operate on her because it was too difficult. Imagine that for 10 years, you're going from doctor to doctor, hunting them down, going out of state or whatnot. She's actually from Tennessee, so she flew to New York, did so much research. Just imagine going to a doctor and being like, I don't want to touch that. It's extremely risky. And that's understandable. But here we have Dr. Langer, 
who's going to go all in. He had planned this multiple day surgery and steps with his team. And he admitted, he was like, yeah, this is going to be crappy. Like it's really difficult. It's high risk, but that's why he's doing it. And just the fact that he's even giving his patients some of that little hope after trying to search for someone who would be willing to help her. I can't even imagine what that's like. And I can't imagine what kind of impact Dr. Langer is having on Mitzi and her family. Right. And I can't help but think, you know, he must be a little bit scared too, because he hears that all these doctors can't treat her or they're like refusing to treat her because they're so scared because it's such a delicate and difficult case. But just the attitude of him walking into the situation saying, we're going to do our absolute best and we're going to bring the best people on our team and do whatever we can to help you. Because I felt like for Mitzi, it was almost like their last hope. I mean, they flew out all the way from Tennessee. Just the fact that Dr. Langer took that step and confidently said, like, I'm going to help you, like, no matter what the end result is, I'm going to do my very best if that's what you want. They must have felt so comforted and, like Jamie said, very hopeful. And what's so cool is that, you know, Missy traveled all the way from Tennessee to um, New York City, which we all live in you know, the general vicinity of New York City, and it's, it's pretty easy for us to all get to. But you kind of have to think about it from her perspective, like, she's going to, you know, the Big Apple, and it's like this crazy, insane hospital that is the only one, it's kind of sounded like in the country, like willing to, to take that risk and treat her. So for her, you know, ended up being a few day surgery with, you know, a lot of neurosurgeons working together, um, because it seemed like a pretty intense case. Um, it was like, I think it was growing into her spine. Um, and it just, it seemed like really complicated. And then the focus switches to Bukvar, who was on the phone with his wife. And, you know, it's crazy because he's also a neurosurgeon and, you know, she's at the dump and she's having a super busy day. She's running a lot of errands. Their daughter wants to get piercings. Like they're talking about the ramifications of that. And then he's reading this journal and while he's on the phone with her and he goes, I'm in this paper, you know, I'm in this journal. And she goes, whatever. Just that banter between them was what was really funny to me to watch because, you know, you don't really get that in the whole like, you know, scripted Grey's Anatomy or um, those other shows because, you know, it's real because, you know, they weren't necessarily fighting, but it was like a really real moment that I really enjoyed. Yeah, she's like, he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, don't you know I take a dump every single morning? Kind of like, duh. But also I will say, I was glad to see that he made time to call his wife because, you know, we hear so many stories where it's really hard to do that sometimes. And family time, little things like that, conversations with your partner it's or your children, that can also be really difficult. So I really honestly was not expecting that or for any personal aspects of his life to be brought into the documentary, but that was a nice surprise. The way that he called his wife, like even during those few minutes of break, I really appreciated him doing that because I know for me, if I had a long day using my whole body, all my energy on, a, on saving someone's life, it'd be really hard for me to like sit back into my office and like call someone else to see how they're doing to focus on that person again, because I would just want to sit down and do nothing and just focus on me. But just the way that he wanted to continuously put his effort on other people that he loves was like, wow, I was honestly so blown away. And at the same time, like, they're so real, because I thought it was so funny how Bukvar would treat his students, like, don't touch anything blue, like, confirm we're operating on the right side. He took a moment to be mindful. He said, let's do a mindful moment. Um, you know, everyone relax, close your eyes, um, take a moment to be here in the present, take deep breaths together, which I completely did not know that they did before surgeries. Maybe this is a specific case that he 
decided to just slow everyone down for the moment and, you know, kind of think about what you were doing before you do it, kind of bringing that whole mindful side of, of life into the, the science side of life, which uh, I really, really enjoyed watching that. And we're all about that here. So I'm pretty sure all of us were like, yes, I was like, yes, like, great job. Like, that's so cool to see that. Medicine, it's not, you can't do everything. There's only so much you can do. They're giving so, they're giving so much power over someone's body. So right before surgery, him like just telling everyone, close your eyes. He was like, take deep breaths. That's really important. And I feel like it's something that should be done before we do anything important, honestly. And again, it really did take me by surprise. And this was before Phyllis's surgery. Again, she's the woman before where they were doing, this was like an exploratory surgery to see if the bump on her head is metastasis or if it's just because one of her plates from previous surgery was just shifting out of place. Unfortunately, he says it's cancer and you can see him teaching the students. He's like, this is purplish. This is what it looks like. And it's cancer. That was really disheartening and really hard to see. And that's what Chloe was talking about when she was saying how he left the OR and went to call her husband and deliver the tough news, but he was great about it. And I just, I just respected him a lot, especially after seeing that scene. And kind of switching gears a little bit, Dr. Langer, who is the chairman of, you know, the neurosurgery department, he meets with the nurse manager who is kind of getting on his case a little bit about being at max capacity, kind of the growing pains and he thinks that they should just push through it. It's just another pill that they have to get over. But she kind of was pulling it back a little bit and saying like, like, hold on one second. Like we don't have the, you know, supplies necessary. We don't have the operating space necessary, but he was kind of like full, full speed ahead, like trying to, you know, get his motivations down um, in, in growing the floor. But as you could see, definitely he gets met with a lot of adversity from mostly from people not necessarily higher than him, but like I guess that also are feeling the growing pains and, and kind of getting on his case about. And this is where you really see the struggle, the raw struggle of trying to grow and help more people because what Dr. Langer, that's what he's about. He's like, we have to grow, we have to help people. That those are his intentions. But to see that there are actually like really tough logistics to think of. And it's something that I wish we didn't have to think about. I feel like it's such an annoying restraint, but it's true. And I feel like that nurse manager was honestly right. She's like, how can we help these people when we don't have enough beds? They're pushing us at max capacity more and more and more. So it's really tough because, especially when you see medical professionals who all they want to do is help but they need resources. And so that's also another problem that we see arise multiple times. And we'll discuss more about that later. Yeah, that was that was a really raw moment too, just to see the back and forth and the frustration. And he was like, I hear you, I understand you, I'll talk to them. So you could already tell that, you know, being a chair of a department and being one of the people that really determines the future of a whole entire hospital, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, and that reminds me of something that he said, like in the midst of his frustrations, when he was saying how, and I quote, the hardest part is dealing with the behaviors of people. Yeah, he was just so angry. And he's so right, because his, I mean, being a doctor is hard itself, like spending every single day trying to save people, people's lives, you know, opening their bodies, putting all your um, energy into this, 
is hard itself, but also just the fact that they have to deal with all these outside things in order to help the patients. It almost sounds ridiculous, but so important. I just see him struggling and trying to juggle these two things. I'm trying to make everything work out. But um, again, being frustrated and letting those real emotions show. And you know what? This is a reality. And I'm sure this happens in a lot of other hospitals too, where they need these things, but they're not receiving it. Right. And what Chloe's talking about is he's actually talking on the phone. And you can tell this has to do with growing the team, which is also what the nurse manager was saying. She's like, if you want more patients, we need more people. We need more doctors. So he was on the phone and he was fighting with someone. He's like, don't worry, I got a plan. On the phone, he's like, now they're making it about stealing attendings. So it's kind of like, I feel like they were trying to find a medical team to recruit, to help with the patients and whatnot. And I guess someone's being butthurt about it and being like, you're trying to steal my attendings or something like that. So he was just like, the behavior of people, he was like, come on, we're doctors. So it's, it was really absurd to that. But at the same time, I'm not surprised that he had to deal with something like that because uh, we're humans and sometimes you have to deal with the behaviors of other people. I was just stressed out from hearing the conversation and I have nothing to do with it. Definitely. And kind of in the same vein of just overall like stress, Dr. Little Richardson, the um, OBGYN resident who is also pregnant, she was talking about how she had to leave her match at the you know end of the year so that her husband can live and work in California. And she um, reveals to the viewers that he has actually been living in California for a while, it sounds like, and he's been visiting her, I think it was like every other Friday or something. It was just so crazy how pursuing your dream of being a physician can really uproot your life, you know, especially if you match out of state. And they have like definitely some problems being coast to coast relationship while she's, first of all, a resident, second of all, pregnant. Just the stress of that, I can't even imagine. But she ultimately seems like she's doing extremely well with it. Um, so good for her. Right. And then the focus switches to back to Dr. Macri, who's in the ER dealing with all these patients and a crazy busy life. And she looks over her shoulder and looks at old woman and she's like, is that Mrs. Keene? And you can tell right away that they have some relationship with this woman. Uh, one of the workers goes, yeah, she got kicked out of her apartment because her partner died. They're talking about sending her to a shelter, but... Dr. Macri's like, she's not going to want to go. So it was really sad to see that. And it's like, what do you do when you know you have someone there and they are going to get kicked out because, you know, her partner died and how is she supposed to pay? She's, she's really old. How is she supposed to pay her bills? You could just see Dr. Macri just trying to tailor to her and they give her a drink. They get her a room even. And Dr. Macri's like, okay, we'll talk later about this. Then you see Dr. Macri like making calls and she's like, yeah, I have someone here. You can only call her Mrs. Keene. So again, you could see that Dr. Macri obviously has a relationship with her, knows what she likes to be called by, which is also something very respectable. It's really important to make sure like when you call a patient, you, you can be like, Jamie, is that okay if I call you Jamie? Like, that's a very big thing that's extremely important, especially when having a relationship with someone. So it was it was cool to see that Dr. Macri made sure that whoever she was talking to knew that. Yeah, that was a, a cool moment to see because although it is the emergency room and kind of the mentality is get them in, get them out, there are those patients that that can't work on that. What do you do? You send her back out to the streets because of this really, really unfortunate situation that she's in. You kind of have to be uh, a physician first, but kind of a social worker second. For me, that was kind of like motivating to see almost because she cared so much about 
her patient that, oh my gosh, you know, we can't send her to the facility. We have to figure something out for her. And kind of taking the next step to protect her and make sure that she was good. That was cool to watch. And a quote that she said that stuck with me was, they don't teach you this in a textbook, how to deal with someone's social situation. That's when she was talking about someone that was homeless that she was treating. And it's so true. You don't learn that in the book. And to kind of take the next step and, you know, make sure that they're, like I said, like they're safe and comfortable um, with their situation is so completely important, especially in the emergency room, because you do have the huge volume of patients going through that revolving door and to make sure that they're all set in their house or, you know, whatever situation that they're in is a very important thing. And I don't even know how that would impact your her own emotional well-being, you know? How right. can you know that the patient you just treated is just, you're just sending them back out to the streets or to a shelter? I would not be able to, I never treat these patients and just hearing their story, I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I know for myself, it's going to be something like an uphill battle for me personally, but just to think she's pregnant and she is working a crazy job and it's such a big emotional burden as well. Like how do you draw the line between caring for them and getting too personal or maybe caring quote unquote too much just because it's impossible to bring all that emotional baggage back home, especially for your own well-being. So just to see her still work so closely, because I know some people, um, they say like, don't get too close to the patients. It's harder for you, blah, 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 blah. But she doesn't do that. She takes an extra step. She goes, do you have family? Where's your home? Who do you live with? And she really knows them a lot within even just one sitting, just one treatment. So that was just something I was thinking about for myself, how amazing that is and how hard it must be. I'm sure it's not easy for anyone, but it's just something I was thinking about because I know that that's something that I would struggle with a lot. And you also see, um, you know, with Dr. Little Richardson, um, the OBGYN physician, she kind of goes the extra step and, and talks to her patients, you know, and she says, what are you scared of? Is it the act of delivery? Like what part about delivery specifically are you afraid of? She tells her patient, and this kind of goes back to our doula days, that our bodies are made for this. Um, there's no reason to be scared. Um, you know, you're in good hands. You're in the best place in the world to be, you know, giving birth, you know, a, a medical hospital. And she makes sure, you know, the woman has a healthy baby. Also, <laughs> it's, they take away the baby, um, you know, for, you know, medical reasons um, at first. But you kind of can see, like, the pain in the patient's eyes is, like, she doesn't get to spend, you know, the first few few moments of the baby's life with, with them. But, you know, Dr. Little does a great does a great job respecting the patient and making sure that she's comfortable and that she has an, an overall good experience with her with her birth. Because, you know, in my opinion, giving birth is one of the like the greatest God given inventions to women. And I think she really empowers them throughout their whole experience. Dr. Little also talks about how going through medical school and residency, she became more jaded. But, um, and I understand where she's coming from because she's witnessing the same births over and over and over again. And she's been studying the same thing over and over and over again to prep for this. And I feel like, I'm sure the first few years, she's like, wow, like this is amazing. And she had like, she put in a lot more emotion i guess into it but i think after a few like many years there she's more like okay here's another one there's another baby and it's just like you know like a routine for her almost but she also quotes that there is such thing as a calling so for her it's not merely just a job where 
you know, she just goes to get paid, but she does it because this is what her life was destined to do. And this is why she's doing it. And I think that's so important because with any job, really, especially in the medical field, um, because you're, you have so many like heavy things weighing down your shoulders, you really have to identify whether this is your life calling or just something that you want to do to make money. Because if you're in it for the money, you're going to get tired really quick, you're going to get burnt out a lot faster. And you're at the end of the day, you're not going to want to do it anymore. But because like what Dr. Little Richardson said, it's her calling. So this is what keeps her going every single day. That just really stood out to me. Yeah. And so, you know, through all of their experiences, just in this first episode that they give us, um, it's amazing to see how they <laughs> get back on the train at night like normal people. And Dr. Langer, actually, this is a quote from him. He was uh, the neurosurgeon. You walk outside and you're right back into the regular world. And you could definitely see that as the camera, you know, pans the busy um, city street and, you know, the moving subway. And they're just standing there in regular clothes, uh, just getting back on the train and going home after their insane day. That's really what this whole show's about is like doctors are normal people too. Doctors, you know, have thoughts and feelings just like anyone else. They have to go home at night and put their head on the pillow and whether they leave their work behind or not, uh, I, I bet that's an individual thing for each physician, but you could see what they go through throughout their day and, you know, they have to go home and kind of, you know, regroup to do it all again tomorrow. So ultimately this first episode was kind of getting the viewers familiar with all the physicians, a little bit of their backstories, and yeah, definitely check it out. So moving on to the second episode, it opens again with um, Dr. Little Richardson helping a woman through labor. Part of the whole humanization part of this was she has a, a great delivery, baby's healthy, everything went well, and <laughs> goes into her office and kind of gets into like a quasi argument with her husband over the phone about, you know, she's not calling him back, but you kind of see what she just came out of, which was like, not a hectic, but like a very involved um, scene where bringing a life into the world. And it just kind of seems trivial that, you know, he's mad at her for not calling him back and stuff. But it, again, like, as I was saying, it's just so real. It's so raw because they are people too. And they, you know, fight with their spouses over, you know, silly things like this. So overall, it's just, this whole season um, is just really, really great to, to experience. Right. And I thought that scene was so funny. The one that you just brought up, she like goes into her office and she calls him back and he's talking and then she hears an alarm go off. So she goes, hold on a second. And she leaves, but he's still talking on the phone and he's like laughing to himself. And I was like, oh yeah. my God. And she oh, in the room at all. She had, she ran out cause she, you know, hurt the alarm and she's like, okay, someone's in trouble. And he's like, yeah, you know, like, and he's talking to himself. Basically she comes back. He's still talking to himself. And it, it was like funny, but it was so sad. So like when you, when you hear Kevin complain, like, boo you didn't call me back that's what they call each other very cute by the way I kind of understand his frustration and it was like funny but sad at the same time and I felt bad for laughing but it just shows like it's it's really hard to communicate too he didn't know that she was gone for like however many minutes he was talking to himself so it was also another raw moment and I thought it was like a great way to open up the episode yeah, you can tell Kevin was getting a little frustrated when she came back and she was like, what were you saying? Or like, well, like, what were you up to? And he was like, you know what, never mind. Yeah, like they both have so much to sacrifice. And because 
like her job is so heavy. They have to really deal with so much and compromise a lot of things to adjust to one another. And yeah, I I also thought that was a really good way to open up the episode because it showed how she was juggling so many things and how, you know, it does get complicated in her personal life too. And kind of in the same vein, after the whole scene with Dr. Little Richardson delivering a healthy baby, they switched to Bukvar, who is um, the neurosurgeon. Um, He's talking to his nurse practitioner about a patient in a clinical trial, and the genuine excitement that you could see from him goes to show that how much he cares about his patients and that he was uh, his scan was better than the last time and he points out pointed out exactly what he was looking at and explains it to the patient and <laughs> it's funny because it who he's speaking with is is a young man at this point who uh, young man meaning maybe he's like 35 um, he just just had uh, his first daughter and he's he's trying to you know make small talk with him and and he's talking about yard work um, you know how he's super busy but he still gets the time to know his patient and, you know, kind of deep dive into like their life and, and recognize that they're people too. They're not just, you know, the scan, they're not just the numbers. Um, And that's something that I really like to see out of, you know, all four doctors that they, that they follow within the series. Right. And then we revisit Dr. Langer, who, if he was the chair, he's the chair of neurosurgery at Lenox Hill he went back for the second surgery on Mitzi, who is the woman from Tennessee who had the tumor for 10 years that no one wanted to touch. So the surgery actually goes really well and he's really happy with what happened. So just stay tuned for that because they talk more about her recovery and what happens after that. But it was nice to see that the surgery went well. Basically how they were doing it was they were breaking the whole big operation down into these little procedures that were I shouldn't say little, but uh, procedures that were happening every day. This one was, it ended up being, you know, kind of unnecessary because they were creating a separate blood supply to the area that they were going to remove the blood supply to based on what they saw with her anatomy scan. But what they didn't realize is that she actually had her own second kind of backup natural uh, blood supply line there. So Unfortunately, um, the surgery that they did in this episode, episode two, kind of wasn't needed. Obviously, they didn't know that going in. And then they switched focus again to back to Dr. Macri, who is the emergency room physician. Um, And this time she goes to her OB doctor and she reveals to us that she's pregnant at 39 years old. Um, She's glad that she can be pregnant at an older age, but you know, obviously it's concerning because she's still you know, working to her fullest extent and, you know, trying to have a healthy pregnancy. They actually find out in this appointment that she has borderline high blood pressure. Um, and that kind of leads her to wonder if she can return to work or she if she has to find covers. And the doctor kind of, you know, rolls her eyes and is like, yes, of course you can find covers. Like, you're not the only ER doctor in New York City. And obviously your job will understand that you're you're close to delivering so overall she just has like a really hard-working mindset even throughout her whole pregnancy which hopefully pays off in the end yeah like you mentioned because of the nature of her work um she's under a lot of pressure and she's constantly stressed out having to take care of others in her job is kind of like having another child because it's 
just as big of a responsibility. Um, of course, it's not your child, but just the fact that you have to care for them, love them, and give them your attention. I kind of felt like that was like having your own child, like your job, your career, because I know that her job means a lot to Dr. Macri. She also mentioned that she's really sad to leave work. And like even the other doctors, they advise her to measure her blood pressure constantly, you know, take it easy at work. But I remember her saying, I just want to work till the very end. And damn, I really saw how much she loves her job and that she really found her calling. But I was very worried that she was going to work too hard and like almost overwork herself. But I understand because sometimes I think about that too. Like, when I get pregnant, do I have to leave my job? Like, how long do I have to be out for? Do I just have to sit around, you know, taking care of my baby? Is that all I have to do? And maybe that's like a workaholic's mindset. But I kind of understood where she was coming from when she was having those thoughts. I think it also just shows that she genuinely cares about her work and her patients. So that's also something that I am already struggling with, even though I haven't even, I'm not even close to working. But I know that it's going to be so tough for me to leave, even if for like maternity leave, which is... 100% acceptable and needed but she was saying she was like joking she was like I'm probably gonna come back early but I understand that too it's it's really hard to let go especially because I feel like well at least these physicians again like what Dr. Langer said before it's not just their job it's their life so to have to leave something behind I feel like it's such a big struggle right and she's already given up so much of her life you know the fact that she had to become pregnant at 39 likely due to her career choice that already offset her whole family plans. And then the fact that she wants to keep pushing through it and keep working is, it's crazy to me. But, you know, switching gears to the other pregnant doctor, Dr. Little Richardson, she actually reveals to us that she's a bad OB patient and she can't ever remember to take her prenatals. She talks about her own ultrasound appointment, like it's inconvenient. Um, you know, meanwhile, she was making appointments for everyone else, all of her other patients for their ultrasounds. You know, I can't imagine how stressful and busy work must be for her to feel like setting aside time to take care of yourself and your baby feels like an inconvenience. You could definitely see her attitude through, through the eyes of, you know, what she was saying. It's kind of like you know exactly what to tell your patients, but you can't listen to your own advice and your own knowledge. Like this is her specialty yeah. it's her life. So that was just so funny that she can't even, because obviously if her patient was doing the same thing she would be doing, she would be upset. She'd be like, you need to take your prenatals. You need to go to all of your ultrasound appointments. But it was, it really broke my heart when she was like, at this point, my own appointment is so inconvenient for me. In my head, I was like, you deserve this. You actually need it for the safety of your child. So at the same time, as much as it was surprising, at the same time, it really wasn't. Yeah, I felt like her being pregnant was almost like holding her back from her job. And she looked frustrated. Um, and she was kind of upset almost even for not being able to do these things. But again, her and the other doctors all want to do their best, but it's hard to sacrifice their jobs because of this new pregnancy. And um, I know we mentioned this before, but you know, the hormones, it's, you're going to be experiencing so many different emotions. And just to balance all of that is, yeah, that's really difficult. And in the, actually, the next segment of this episode, we actually get introduced to uh, like a clinical trial. So it's with a patient named Augie. She's a NYPD lieutenant, and she has a huge brain tumor, um, went into remission, and then it came back. So Dr. Bookfar is actually forming a relationship with her right now. He's talking to her and he tells her 
you are the eighth patient in this country to get this treatment for her glioblastoma. So I was like, dang, to hear that you're the eighth person in this whole freaking country to get this treatment, to be a part of this clinical trial, I couldn't even comprehend that for myself. It was cool to see that not only were we seeing, you know, procedures that have already been done, but also to see the horizons of science and medical treatments being pushed and to see what it's like for a patient who is introduced to a clinical trial such as that. And so kind of the backstory with the clinical trial, um, she has a glioblastoma, which is a really aggressive type of brain cancer. And it's actually an interesting trial. Um, they, they explain it in layman's terms very well in the documentary, um, you know, basically they say like, okay, we're going to stimulate her immune system with a bacterial infection. You know, we're going to purposely infect her with bacteria so that hopefully, God willing, her immune system, you know, will be activated and, you know, help fight the cancer. It's for what they, they tell the viewers, it sounds like she's making good progress with it, um, that they're, quote, making a dent in the disease. Ultimately, it's just a super difficult, complex cancer that, yeah, there is probably only eight people in this. I totally believe that there's eight people um, in this trial. And she has to have like a super, super like trustful relationship with her doctors. And, you know, you could definitely see it in her eyes, like when she talks to them, that she's super grateful for everything that they're doing for her. And at the same time, she's young, you know, I don't know exactly how old she is, but you just see and like she has so much life left in her and that she's willing to try anything and it's 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 sad right and i feel like in this part you could also see dr bookbar's excitement and passion for research and anything new and he says every wednesdays i go to the lab i talk to the team i talk to the amazing researchers i see what's getting done all the trials all the experiments so you could see that not only is he a neurosurgeon talking to patients he has a day that he reserves to go see if there's any other potential treatments that haven't been discovered yet which i think is so brilliant well he says there are brilliant scientists that don't understand medicine and then there are people who treat the disease clinically but don't understand the science which honestly i completely completely believe so to see how he combines the two worlds he knows the textbook knowledge and whatnot. He knows what to say, like a script. But to see that he goes to an actual lab and is involved heavily with research, I thought that was just seeing like two huge worlds collide. And I love this part of the um, episode because they say this word. It's called neuropsychopharmacology. And that's what he, he studies on his day off when Jamie's talking about how he's trying to always find, you know, the upcoming new clinical trials and the upcoming new like technology that's coming out. And it's, it says a lot that he's, he's not, he's not necessarily super young, you know, you know, that he has daughters and everything. And he goes out of his way to continue to get the updated and, you know, best treatments for his patients. And I love that about him. And then the episode kind of pans to Dr. Langer. And he's on the phone with his son. He's talking about how he's stressed about being a good dad. Again, I really appreciated that he called his son between shifts and like whenever he can. Um, you can definitely see that he's trying to be the best doctor and the best dad so that he doesn't miss out on anything. 
there's just so much emotional energy that goes into doing this well. It kind of broke my heart that he looked at the situation and thought that he wasn't doing enough. Um, he even said like, oh, you have to accept the fact that sometimes you have to give something up in order to get something. You sometimes have to give up something or sacrifice or compromise to do this other thing that you really love. And he tells his son at the end of the phone call that he wants to be there when he needs absolutely anything at all. And he wants to be helpful to him. And I just felt like this part of the episode also showed how real these issues are for doctors, that their issues are not only just like, oh, like get this cancer out or treat him, but it's also like, I want to spend time with my son and I want him to know that I'm there for him. It's just not as magnified, I guess, in like other films, other document, other doctor films and like medical reality shows and whatnot. And you can even see his care for his family and whatnot. It just translates over to his patients because um, it shows a scene where he's about to operate on someone. Uh, his name is Kevin. He's also part of a clinical trial. And they tell him beforehand, like, okay, we're going to take a piece of your tumor and inject it in mice and whatnot to study. It shows that right before the operation, Dr. Langer speaks to the rest of his team. So, you know, Kevin's prepared on the table and Dr. Langer goes, this is Kevin. He works at a restaurant. His mom and sister are here from Detroit. And he goes on and on about, you know, just a, a few personal details about his patient. And I, I fell in love with that. I was like, wow, like just to take the time to let the team know that this is very well someone who has, he has a life outside of this. I don't know. Like, how did you guys feel about that? Yeah, my mom used to always say you could either be a good mom or a good doctor. There's, it's rare that you're going to have both. And the fact that he you know, recognizes that, you know, hey, I am a I'm chair of neurosurgery at this huge Northwell-owned hospital, but I still want to take time out of my day to call his son. And he seemed like it wasn't a chore for him. Like, it seemed like he was extremely interested in hearing what his son had to say. <laughs> in my opinion, the son didn't necessarily have this match the same attitude, but, you know, and he wants to be a good dad. You see that that's so evidently in him. And so much emotional energy has to go into his work and his field. So his family side, he probably feels like he's not doing enough, but I definitely think that he's a good dad and he's doing the best that he can. And to go back to your question, Jamie, about how he introduces Kevin to everyone, it's kind of like almost his family member. It seems like he really cares and that he is very interested in humanizing the person that they're going to slice open and do all these crazy things to, you know, his brain and everything. But the fact that he takes a 10 second time out and makes everyone not pray in like a religious sense, but just like, you know, kind of meditate on the fact that all human life is so valuable and what you're about to do, you do with extreme privilege and that they have the privilege to work on him today um, and, and, to, and to try to help cure him. Yeah, and just the fact that this has nothing to do with the surgery itself or what the result is going to be, but the fact that this doctor takes time to introduce the patient to the other people in the operation room kind of acknowledges him as a human being with a personal life that when he wakes up from this surgery that he has a life to get back to and they want to do everything possible so that his life becomes normal again and just the fact that Dr. Langer uh, makes sure that the rest of the staff is fully aware of that was just so imperative and I hope that this is what other doctors do in their surgery rooms too because to Dr. Langer Kevin was not just 
another body to be operated on, but a real human with a family, with goals, and with people who love him. He made sure that everybody in that room knew that so that they all had a collective goal of treating this person to the best of their abilities. Right, and in this surgery, actually, Dr. Langer and Dr. Bofar were working on it together. And after they clean up, you see that they take a piece of the tumor out to inject it in mice. So you see that aspect of the clinical trial and research happening. And after they finish, Dr. Bookfar obviously is cleaning up. And something important that's really stood out to me was he reaches down to his shoes and he goes, always clean your shoes. Families don't want to see blood on your shoes. And I thought that was amazing for him to even think about the family's reaction, just keeping that in mind. I just feel like there was so much mindfulness going on. And, um, you know, to switch patients a little bit, um, Bookfar, who it, it makes it seem like, you know, it was right after he did the surgery, but um, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the exact time frame. So he's talking to Phyllis, the woman who had like the bump on her head. And she said she's so okay with dying, but she just wants to stop treatment and die happily. And I can't imagine how tough it is to send her home. Ultimately, he says each of us has to think about what we would want. And he, you know, kind of gives an anecdote about his own life, saying that his dad passed away of chemo actually. So he didn't pass away from, you know, his primary illness, which was cancer, that he passed away from complications. Um, it makes it sound like with his treatment. He agrees that that shouldn't happen. And for the longest time, he couldn't be around his grandchildren when he was going through the treatment. And he kind of relays that to his patients, I guess, that are normally around like Phyllis's age that are quote unquote okay with dying. It sounds horrible, but he really um, can resonate with them in that sense. And he really makes important gestures to her, you know, like physical touch. And he seems so genuine that if anything ever goes wrong in my life, I want him to be my doctor. <laughs> right. And not to dampen the mood or anything, but after that, we find out next in this episode that Dr. Little Richardson, the OBGYN, she's checking up on her baby, and they find out that there may be a birth defect because of the length of fat on the baby's neck. It's longer than normal. So you could, mm -hmm. I was panicked too. Like I literally gasped because I, I was just like, I also panicked too. And you could see the looks on their faces. How did you guys feel about that scene when you found out alongside with them that their baby could have a complication? Um, I definitely panicked because I, I forget if it was like an ultrasound tech or a physician doing the um, sonogram, but she, everything, you know, she's saying, oh, baby's, baby looks good, X, Y, Z. And then she turns to the camera and she's like, oh, can you guys turn that off for a second? Right. And I was like, oh my goodness, like what, like what does that mean? Um, is the baby okay? It seemed like completely out of the blue because she was um, you know, using like a reassuring voice with them in the beginning that, you know, everything was fine. But I guess it was like a little um, thing that she ended up seeing, you know, I guess in the middle of the ultrasound. Ultimately, they said that she might be diagnosed with Noonan's syndrome. Um, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but but they, the parents, um, you know, Dr. Little and Kevin seem so welcome for this baby to come into the earth and they seem like extremely supportive of whatever extra challenges that they're going to have to take with this baby. It's, it's also kind of hard though, because you know that she's an OBGYN physician, you know that she's birthing healthy babies many, many times a day. Kind of, I wonder what's going on through her head. Like here I am helping women, empowering women to 
have healthy babies, have great pregnancies. And here I am, you know, kind of getting the short end of the stick, so to say. She's super tough and I know that she's going to get through it. To lighten things up a little bit, there was a baby shower for Dr. Macri, which was honestly the sweetest, most amazing thing I've ever seen. Like all the nurses and doctors got together and they threw a little baby shower in one of the rooms right in the hospital. Um, They had gifts and food and they surprised Dr. Macri. And you can just tell how excited and happy she was because it's like she was in the middle of this really busy schedule and they just kind of surprised her and like to celebrate her pregnancy, to celebrate her baby and to congratulate her. Yeah, like, what did you guys think about that? I, I thought that was so loving and I would love to work in that hospital, honestly, to be in that environment where everybody's so supportive. Yeah, I loved it. It was, it was so cute. The funniest thing, though, was she left her party before anyone else did. Like, she left her own party. Oh, yeah. Like, Bye, guys. With her, like, food on a, like, a to-go plate. <laughs> and you could just tell she is busy, and she, she was the first one to leave. But I just feel like that says a lot about her character. But it was really nice to hear her say, like, this is, like, the best place to work. And you can tell everyone loves her. And they're saying how much they'll miss her when she leaves or her maternity leave. So that was really nice. And it was really wholesome. And kind of as fun and happy as that scene was, um, it switches to Dr. Langer and Missy's surgery. um, And he's completely mad at uh, his staff for having a delayed CAT scan. Um, Just sounds like an overall IT problem that was an accident, not necessarily any one particular person's fault, but he kind of is so brilliant and, you know, so sophisticated, but he knows how to communicate at the same time, you know, like he holds it and he goes, okay, love you guys, bye. Like he's obviously upset, but he knows how to control his temper um, because ultimately in brain surgery, I feel like there's no room for tempers. Um, and what, what he's doing here is, you know, making that bypass that we talked about previously because there's a huge blood vessel going through a tumor that they would have to remove. And ultimately, at the end, they find out that she's kind of having a quote-unquote good complication. She already had blood, like a blood supply to the area of the brain that they were talking about, um, you know, making the bypass to. Um, so ultimately, they did this whole extra step today for, I don't want to say nothing, but for nothing, but um, because they just put her at more risk. And this, the whole time they were like, all right, well, we didn't hurt her as long as she doesn't stroke tonight, as long as she doesn't stroke tonight. And, you know, ultimately she ended up having a stroke, which was really, really a horrible, horrible situation. Yeah, complications are definitely not something to be taken lightly. And I'm sure this is, I'm 100% sure that this is something that all the doctors had to kind of go through that not everything they do will be a success. Not every, you know, operation has a happy ending. Yeah, but, you know, they're trying their best and they're doing everything that they can. And they're kind of taking further steps to decide on what to do after the stroke. And this kind of just reminded me of what one of the surgeons said in the operation room. He was like, oh, this is why no one does this stuff. It's so difficult he's right. Like if some, if people saw this merely as a job, like who would want that job? There's so much pressure in doing it right and having a successive surgery. Yeah, exactly. And so guys, those were, that was just the first two episodes of this docuseries. In our next podcast, we'll actually be talking about episodes three and four. So if you'd like to join us in terms of discussion and on this journey, as we get to know the patients and the physicians more, please go check it out. It's 
called Lennox Hill and it's available on Netflix. So yeah, we're definitely excited to continue our discussion with this. Be well and we'll catch you guys next time on Press Talk.